I'm Maxwell Suzuki, and you're listening to the Passengers Proscast. I'm Max Suzuki, the prose editor at Passengers Journal, where our mission is to publish compelling art that is necessary rather than desired. You're listening to the Passengers Prosecast for Volume 4, Issue 4, where we discuss what makes the prose featured in our most recent issue so compelling and necessary. Today, I'm joined by our special guests who will be co-hosting with me, our assistant fiction editor, Holly Allen. Say hello, Holly. Hey, I'm excited to talk about the work today. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. Um, So do you want to kind of just jump right into it? Sure. So first we're going to be looking at I Named My Fibroid Mary by Hilary Gordon. Uh, Let's hear an excerpt from that now. The number one reason girls miss school is because of their periods. I tried my best to never use my period as an excuse to call out of school or, as I grew older, out of work. I thought the pain was just the penance I had to pay for being born a woman. I thought that I had to be a good girl, to not complain or disrupt, to quietly grin and bear it. When I was younger, I would miss sports because I was in so much pain, Sarah told me as she sipped her Dr. Pepper out of the can with a straw. I would just stay in the fetal position in bed. When I asked her if she ever misses work at her new job because of her endometriosis pain, she said, A week before my period, I get sick. I get feverish. I'm always sick. I'm nauseous, dizzy, and I have a headache bluish kind of thing. I've gotten used to it. It makes me want to call in, but I just work from home. When I was younger, I definitely missed some school, but my responsibility level is different now. When I was 33, the pain was constant. Not just the day before my period like when I was a teenager. Not just a week of pain like when I was in my 20s. Now, it was daily. All right. So it was great to hear a little bit of the piece before getting started. Um, So I really enjoyed this piece. I think it's super important in terms of uh, content and it's super impressive in terms of presentation. Uh, What did you think? Yeah, no, I, so I, our readers really connected with this piece um, and they found that its subject matter was like important. And, and that's kind of why, uh, I wanted to showcase this piece. And, you know, it's it's interesting because this speaker really takes the their experience and layers in some of the facts, some of the medical history of it. And I thought I found that to be very compelling. And so kind of what what were your initial thoughts jumping into this piece? Why do you why do you think they named their fibroid Mary? <laughs> Well, um, so what a fabulous title, right? Um, So thanks for bringing that up. But I mean, the title alone says so much in that we're talking about a fibroid. So we're talking about a condition or an illness that is typically, you know, that is common among either women or people who are assigned female at birth or have certain anatomy. And the fact that it's a fibroid that is named Mary. So it has this assigned female name. We're really putting straight out the gate that we're talking about these type of conditions um, and that we're talking about what it is to be a woman and how having these conditions, these painful conditions, dealing with chronic pain, how you tend to be treated by the medical complex, by medical workers, and by those around you when you are 
a woman and how expectations can be so rough for you. So I think the sort of title is both introducing us to the concept of, you know, womanhood or femininity and expectations therein, and then the fibroid itself. So you're immediately hit with a lot just straight away from that title, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think you you kind of hit on something that I was like, really brought this piece together was the fact that not only was the family as well as, you know, medical professionals, they really didn't respect the speaker's pain and push it off because, you know, they're saying, oh, it's just a period. That's kind of how, you know, things happen. But I don't know. I, I, I'm wondering how you like how that way of someone understand, understanding their own body and people not listening to that. Mm -hmm. how those kind of conflict and those create suffering for yeah. many years, decades for the, for this person. And, and I think, you know, eventually uh, she gets the, the treatment that she needs, but it, it comes at a point where, you know, the suffering is almost too much. Yeah. Um, and kind of my question is at what point do we push too much for, for women and people with assigned female at birth how much do we kind of push them to not acknowledge that pain, to not acknowledge their own bodies telling them, you know, what's wrong and instead, you know, someone else separate from, from who they are. I think that is really powerful to see, but really sad also to, to kind of have to deal with that on your own. Right. Yeah. And it, it is in a sense, um, the character is dealing with this, essentially on her own. And even when there is some acknowledgement uh, in the piece, you know, that she should, you know, figure out what's going on or an acknowledgement that her pain is, is real and should be dealt with. Even when that happens, there's still the concept that you know how your pain feels. So what you were taught, exactly what you're talking about, that you know your own body, right? And it's interesting because just that phrase, you know your own body brings up a lot of questions that the piece deals with, which is, what does it mean when you feel that you're in pain, when your body feels a particular way? So in that sense, you know your own body, but you literally mm -hmm. don't know the medical terminology and you don't have a literal diagnosis. So in that way, you don't know your own body and you need this mm -hmm. outside individual, this medical professional to diagnose you. So it's almost as though your knowledge of your body, your feelings aren't really valid because they don't have that name or that title, right? That medical condition yeah. with it, which is an issue for a lot of, you know, individuals that are suffering with chronic illnesses that are difficult to pin down, right? Either because in this case, in this story, because the proper care isn't being taken and certain people aren't looking in the right place, et cetera, or because it's just in general, um, an obscure condition. Speaking of which in this particular piece, I think you did mention this previously, about how there are statistics and there are facts that are interlaced throughout the piece amongst this sort of personal dialogue and these personal experiences. And I found that personally to be very moving because you get a great balance of the emotional, the evocative experience that this individual is having with this pain and this gaslighting, but then you have the actual hard facts. So really the story hits you from two directions where there's a great balance of the emotional and the logical. So I'm kind of curious about, you know, what you thought about that. And if that's like something that you've personally seen frequently in prose, because I know I haven't. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, this piece particularly, I think did it really well because 
it doesn't start off with those the stats and facts. It starts off with personal experience and then going from there introduces, oh, here's like a wider breadth of like, my experience is not just my own, but other people's as well. And I have seen it happen where graded essays, they do kind of pull in stats and facts. In those cases, it feels a little bit more disjointed. In this case, Mm. it's inserted at the right moments. And I also think that like, it only brings in the relevant information that it needs. And then from there says, okay, now that we have our stats, stats and facts, now that we have kind of a basis of understanding, here's my personal experience, here's kind of what I had gone through, and here's why this is important. And I think also that one of these facts in particular talked about later on that the majority of absences in, in school can be attributed to periods or uh, things of that nature. And again, like I've never kind of had that personal experience, Mm -hmm. but it is interesting. And I think eye-opening to see that like, this is a large, large problem and something that like many people don't discuss either because of, you know, the medical professionals not acknowledging it in, Mm -hmm. in a way that it should be, or it being brushed off by other people. Um, And so those were kind of my thoughts on, you know, bringing those stats and facts in. Yeah. And what you just said about, you know, whether it be the medical professionals or whether it be, you know, just in general being brushed off by other people, that was something that Mm -hmm. really stuck out to me in this particular piece. Um, Not only that the medical professionals are sort of, you know, discounting her pain, which, which does happen, but also that her, you know, quote unquote friends, I mean, she calls them her friends Mm -hmm. are gaslighting her or discounting her pain. I know that in the piece, there's one friend who says, quote, I just don't let my period affect my life the way you do quote. And then the character wonders, quote, was I exaggerating it? I sometimes wonder, was I faking it for attention? End quote. So even her so-called friends are, Mm. you know, gaslighting her or discounting her feelings. And so, That was an interesting example, and there are other examples of this in the piece, and, you know, I encourage people to read it, that sort of display how some women, even if they do menstruate, they will discount the pain of others just because there's sort of no leeway for uh, pain or for um, a lapse in productivity, whether that has to do with, you know, sexism or capitalism or just views within the medical industry how it can affect others who are supposed to be your friends and who don't necessarily work in medicine, that they too can sort of exacerbate the problem. Yeah. Yeah. It, it definitely like brings up the the idea that, you know, as a society, we don't really acknowledge or really want to point to the reasons behind these the, the pain. And mm-hmm. so I think that that is just really interesting to see that that kind of conflict and play out. I was also really interested in, like, on the line level, the way the the writer describes pain. Like, someone cut me open with a dull knife and took a red-hot screwdriver and is driving it into my flesh like a demon is doing a hot lava river dance in my body. Right. Um, quote. So I, that is, that is, like, very specific, very, like, powerful. and yeah. And having those kind of like pain described in that way, I think almost like sheds a light on, oh, like this is terrible to kind of go through the amount of 
pain having to essentially a demon like that mm-hmm. is yeah that's tough to to read and and realize that that is the pain that this person goes through you know on a monthly almost daily basis yeah so it, yeah what, what are your thoughts on on the way it describes pain um i think it's great because on the one hand it's unique imagery i don't think i've ever had the um demon dancing imagery quite in that way, especially in relation Mm -hmm. to pain. So it's definitely unique imagery. So it really sticks in your mind. And it's just one additional way that the author is really trying to impress upon the reader that the pain is no joke. I mean, the descriptions are unique and intense and the pain is notable. It's different. It's unique in that sense from the pain that some of those around her feel, but it's also intense. So I think it does a great job of really creating that sort of lasting effect, especially in contrast with some of the other scenes, you know, the statistics or facts being given. I think the imagery Mm -hmm. sort of stands out all the better that way. Mm. Yeah, I I agree on that. Um, And it does also end at a a better point for this narrator, Mm -hmm. but also kind of almost like a call to action to be, you know, hey, this is a problem. It's not just my problem. Other people have it. And I think that was kind of a beautiful note to end on saying, you know, I I was able to get through this, but, you know, we need more help. We need uh, more attention to this problem. That's kind of why um, I found this piece to be compelling and I, I found it to really hit home so thank you for, you know, dis- discussing this piece with me, Holly. And yeah, if you, if you have any other kind of thoughts, I'd like to hear them. Um, not particularly just that I will say that I think this is the only prose piece that I've personally read that deals with PCOS. And I think that issues like this, PCOS, endometriosis, et cetera, are not discussed enough. And because this does that balancing act of, you know, um, facts, statistics, and then the personal experience, I think it's a great way to get informed if somebody wants mm-hmm. to. So um, I would really suggest it for uh, those who are interested. Absolutely. Great. So our next piece that we'll be discussing is Father Coyote by Caleb Michael Sarvis. Um, let's hear a little excerpt right now. There was a time in my life when I thought I might run a marathon, but those days are gone and I barely make it a mile before I turn around and jog home. There's a weight on my back that didn't used to be there, and a new kind of tension in my knees. Everything feels swollen, even if it looks fine. Lee has resorted to calling me Dada when speaking to her womb. I briefly blame her for my poor performance, for bestowing this middle age to shape upon me. But I quickly remember my buddy Dakari, who recently had a stroke in a swimming pool. He hit his head on the wall and fractured a vertebrae. Now he can't feel his legs. Dakari's sister was the one who called. She spoke so softly I thought she might be hiding in a closet somewhere. That maybe I wasn't supposed to know this information. This was two weeks ago, and I've yet to visit him. I tell myself the anxiety of the pregnancy has held me in place. But here I am, engaging in motion. Here I am, making decisions. Great. Well, now that we've heard a little excerpt, uh, we can go ahead and discuss. I think the the main point and thing that I kind of wanted to talk about is we usually don't publish genre-specific pieces, and this one kind of falls into that category. It, it toes a line between kind of literary and genre, breaks those boundaries a little bit. And so I kind of wanted to get your thoughts, Holly, on 
how far kind of does it go into that realm? Where, where does it break those boundaries? And, you know, what, what kind of made it compelling for you? I personally am a big fan of genre fiction. I like sci-fi. I like magical realism. And for me, this piece is interesting because regardless of what you call it, whether you call it a fabulist or absurdist, magical realism, whatever you want to call it, I think it does have some grounding. There's this almost mundane element, right? Where we're talking Mm -hmm. about the neighbors. We're just talking about the people that live across the street But they so happen to be coyotes, you know, they're a family of coyotes. Mm -hmm. So I think that grounding and that sort of, you know, mundane everyday element that you sometimes do find in like fabulous, um, absurdist or surreal work really helps it have this sense of accessibility, despite how, I guess, ridiculous the sort of uh, premise is. So for me, I found that it was enjoyable and that even though it does have this fantastical element that it was almost believable. Even the tone or the language is sort Mm -hmm. of um, casual, honest in a way that makes it believable or relatable or again has that mundane everyday element. So early on in the piece, instead of, you know, OBGYN or obstetrician, or instead of getting these sort of full acronyms or proper language, instead, uh, the narrator says, quote, next week, we have an appointment with the OB whatever, right, end quote. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. the sort of, you know, casual tone, I think, helps draw the reader in to reading this piece about this family of coyotes that move in across the street. Yeah, and I agree. I think what works really well is that this puts that premise, that family of coyotes, and that it, it just drops it very mundanely, very yeah. like plainly. And I think that's what I like about it because the, the premise is just right there. And then we move from that to a, a wider array of the story, which is really about this character and his wife having a kid and also a kind of connection with his friend Duraki. Um, and so I think, I think what it does is it, there are though that pregnancy and that kid aspect brings it and grounds it to what we recognize. And then the, the father coyote aspect of it is, you know, just reaching a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those two balance really well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I agree. I think the the piece does a good job of of sort of, I guess you could say like lulling you in bit by bit, not just with the language being mundane and not just sort of by, you know, giving us this presentation of the coyotes or next door neighbors in this very frank way, but even with the actual word choice, we have these ele- these elements that I guess you would call canine elements or, or maybe a canine mm-hmm. motif throughout the story. So it's not just that the neighbors are coyotes, it's that there's this canine aspect throughout the entire piece. So we see early on that the narrator or main character is, you know, expecting a child, right? And he wants to possibly figure out the gender of this child so that he can choose a name. And he says, you know, I don't want to just think of the baby as the baby. Mm. He says, I wanted to call, quote, I want to call the baby Wolfgang, end quote, right? (laughs) So we have this idea of names like Wolfgang or Cub or these names that are a little bit ridiculous, right? But, you know, maybe the, the narrator's just eccentric with these names. And then later on, we have this concept of slow progression into this more canine aspect. 
So when the narrator is wondering about the coyote children that live across the street, wondering Mm -hmm. how they develop in the womb and the narrator asks or thinks, excuse me, quote, do they have a shrimp stage, a gummy bear stage? How many weeks in did the pups start to look like pups? End quote. So there's this idea that you move from a shrimp to a bear, not a literal bear, but a bear, uh, to a pup. So there's this slow transformation to this canine aspect that I feel like doesn't just happen in that particular scene, but happens throughout the entire piece. I guess um, that is to say, do you have any other thoughts about the sort of development or pacing or that canine aspect? Yeah, I mean, with kind of the line that you just mentioned, there's also like a thread of, of humor that kind of has to go along with this um and and i think the the moment that really gets me is when the the speaker is at a bar and you have father father coyote just like eating out of a bowl at the bar (laughs) yeah having this like weird conversation Mm -hmm. about about like oh like do you believe in ghosts like weird like kind of thing where it's like seems mundane and like you you see those like influx of like more like canine aspect details coming through into, you know, until the end. So yeah, I I found that to be, I guess, surprising and interesting in how like he not only has this like coyote neighbor, but also just like a normal friend that he like plans on like going to talk to Mm -hmm. uh, about the pregnancy. Yeah. And so, yeah, uh, that's kind of, all my thoughts. I, I really enjoyed this piece. It's a fun little array into um, not the, the typical piece we publish, but I, I found it to be really fun and cool and in, interesting. So thank you, Holly. Do you have any other thoughts on Father Coyote? No, I would agree with you. It is definitely a fun piece. And I guess I would just quickly add that it's not only humorous, but it does have some more, you know, somber, emotionally evocative mm-hmm. moments that I thought were really powerful. So I mm-hmm. hope everybody goes on to read and enjoy it because I thought it was a great piece. Absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us for the prose cast. A special thank you to Buku Baro for the music you heard on the show today. The work is available across music platforms. Please find the piece featured here alongside many more in our upcoming issue at PassengersJournal.com. Join us next month for a Passengers Poetry Cast, where members of a poetry staff will discuss what makes the poetry featured and our current issue both necessary and compelling. Are you interested in contributing to the journal or joining our team? Please find our open calls on Submittable and our staff application on the staff page of our website. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for all the latest Passengers news.